As we come to our time of devoting ourselves to the word of God, which is written in the Bible, would you please stand as we read our scripture text for the morning, which is on the wall, published by light or in your Bible, Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 7. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Now, all the tax collectors in the centers were coming near him to listen to him. That's Jesus. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, may the words of my mouth, this sinner, and all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There are three parables in chapter 15 of Luke. First, we have here the parable of the lost sheep, and then we have, beginning with verse 8, the parable of the lost coin, a woman who has ten silver coins and loses one, and then the much-loved parable of the prodigal son, the lost son. And so this is the first in these three stories, and we know the story of the lost sheep because many of us have uh, identified with that lost sheep. My father wrote a poem And the poem was not intended to be published, but my father-in-law asked if he'd ever written poetry, and he said, yes, but it's not supposed to be published, or my prayers. And one of those poems that I got to read eventually, in one of the lines in it is, Lord, I'm such a stupid sheep. And so all of us identify with the lost sheep, and we think of ourselves as just stupid and rebellious sheep. Now, I don't know if any of you have been on a farm that had sheep. Um, Sheep are very different from goats. I've been on a farm with both goats and sheep. And goats are smart. And sheep are dumb. If a sheep gets stuck in barbed wire, it hasn't a clue how to get out of it. Where goats will clean every living plant off the face of the earth. Goats are survivors, and sheep aren't. Sheep need a shepherd, and so Scripture constantly compares us to sheep. One of the most beloved texts of Scripture is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And if we look at what it really says, we realize that we're confessing that we're stupid and rebellious and that we must be cared for. Now, My point in saying this is that all of us know this story from the Gospels. We all know the story of the lost sheep, and we all know that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. But what none of us know 
is how the story is introduced by the Holy Spirit. All right? And here's how that beautiful story is introduced by the Holy Spirit in the book of Luke. Now, all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. And that's a beautiful picture. Knowing today that we finally have some real black people in our church with us, I was thinking of the saying that the church is the most segregated place on Sunday morning. It's the most segregated time in America. I don't think that's true because I don't think the the greatest segregation is actually racial. I think it's the segregation between the church and the lost sheep. I think that's the greatest segregation, where the church always has become the place that sinners may not enter. And often it's the churches that claim to be most biblical and most committed to Jesus Christ, where sinners are least tolerated and most excluded and not wanted. And so the first thing I want you to see is that when God himself came here, to this world and took on our flesh that he was known for hanging with the people who never enter a church building. Okay? Can we all agree that that's true? That Jesus broke the boundaries of segregation. Jesus welcomed sinners. And did you notice that it doesn't just say that Jesus had sinners hanging on his words but it actually qualifies it by saying all of them. Did you notice that? Look at the text. It says all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. So it wasn't a token sinner. You know, we have a few of them occasionally. You know, Paul showed up. It's a joke. He's, well, never mind. What we see here is that all of the sinners hung with Jesus, all of them. All of the tax collectors. Now, we don't really have a feeling for tax collectors, you know. Typically, you'd say, you know, how many of you would like to spend an afternoon with an agent of the IRS? And we'd all laugh and say, no, I wouldn't like to do that, you know. But that doesn't begin to approximate what the attitude was on the part of the Jews to the tax collectors. These were dudes who hung out at every place where merchandise traveled. So it was like inns, it was rivers, it was crossroads. And they were hired by the occupying force. So if you can imagine Afghanistan, that America would hire Afghans to sit at every crossroad and collect money so America could occupy their nation. All right? We all feeling this? What would be the attitude towards him? Then they were known for being rude because once you have the authority of America's military behind you, you don't have to be polite anymore, right? And then they were known for extorting. So it wasn't just that they represented the occupying forces of Rome. It was also that they were just nasty dudes. They were full of themselves and they made no concessions for human kindness. They were so hated that when they were asked, when they would try to give money to the blind or the lame or the lepers, 
their alms were not accepted by the poorest of the poor. They tried to give money to the guy standing at the intersection asking for money. The guy standing there wouldn't take their money. If somebody needed to break a bill, a large coin, a high denomination, they would not, no one would ever go to a tax collector to get change on a dollar bill. And they were not even allowed to testify in a court trial. Now, those men were, all of them, listening to Jesus. Okay? The worst of the worst. The sinners were even worse. Sinners were people that weren't a part of civilized society. They didn't have a junior high degree, let alone a college degree, let alone a high school degree, let alone a graduate degree. They, did, they had no education, and they had gotten to the point where they just simply didn't care what anybody thought about them. They were notorious sinners. And so there was no question who they... All, all of them hung with Jesus. Now, remember how I said that the church is the most segregated place on Sunday morning, and what we're really segregated about is that we don't have any sinners in our midst. Now, what, you know, how can I say that? Well, look at what it says next. Verse 2, both the Pharisees and the scribes, well, who are the Pharisees and scribes? Well, they were the Presbyterian, the Baptists, and the Episcopalian preachers. They were the seminary professors. They were the religious people, all right? And it says, both the Pharisees and the scribes began to rejoice that the lost lambs were getting the care of the shepherd. Right? Right, right, right? Nope, wrong. They were, they were, they were ticked off. They were really angry. Now, why were they angry? Well, it says in verse 2, both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, if you think back about um, the dietary laws, well, don't, you don't have to think back. Just think of yourselves today, you know? Some of you do and don't eat gluten. Some of you are this intolerant, and some of you order your lives around your moral principles of your diet. And I know that's true. Some of you are very proud of being vegan. I swear, every time I go in a restaurant in either Boulder, where we used to live, or Bloomington, and I ask about meat, I always get a vegetarian waitress or waiter. And with great pomp and circumstance, they trot out the fact, well, I'm a vegetarian, so I wouldn't know. And I go, what on earth are you serving meat if you have a principle against eating it for? You know, it just seems wacko. It's like a Baptist working in a bar. And so if you think about us today and you think about all the principles that we have about food, no fat, high fat, no carbs, high carbs. We've got, you know, uh, polyhydrogenated, you know, we've got the gluten, we've got the meat, we have the organic 
vegetables that you buy at the farmer's market and pay an arm and a leg because the whole point of the farmer's market is to show up. Nobody's laughing, but it's true. Thank you. That's the center of Jewish religious life at the time of Jesus. Everything was about making distinctions over food, over washing, over what was done on Sunday and what was not done on the Sabbath. It would have been Saturday, actually. In fact, it was such an intense uh, living out of your religion publicly so everybody knew that you were a very holy religious person that the Pharisees developed not just rules that the Old Testament gave you in Leviticus about what meat you could and couldn't eat, right? About what you did if a pimple started growing on the wall of your house. How many of you have read that text? I just read it this last week. It's mind-boggling, you know? Then get the priest, he'll come in and look at the house, then clear it out for seven days, then if the pimple doesn't return, then break out the stone and replace the stone, and if he doesn't come back and And so all these laws that were called the ceremonial laws that made a distinction, the whole purpose was to make a distinction between God's people and the world, right? And so these religious leaders were perfect at cultivating their ability of showing their righteousness to everybody else by what they ate, what they did and didn't do on six days of the week and what they didn't do on the Sabbath, by how they handled their clothing, by, you know, what what, uh, uh, bling they had. You know, but their bling was like these tassels and things that showed that they honored the word of God. Everybody was making a show. Except who? Except the Pharisees and the sinners. And their show was their sin. It was no secret, and everybody knew it. Okay? And so here they are with Jesus, and all the religious people with all their moralism of diet and everything are furious because Jesus who is a religious leader, he's a rabbi, he's like a Bible teacher, right? Jesus is spending all his time with the people that are most wicked, okay? And their reaction is to be so happy because they had spent their lives loving the lost. Right? No. Nope. Nope. They were furious. They were angry. Why were they angry? Well, it says because Jesus hung with them and ate with them. Now, do you think that that's the real story? If you look at what the Bible says, it says the Pharisees began to grumble, saying, now you know that wicked people never tell you the truth, right? And so whatever they were saying wasn't quite the truth, right? So what was it that really had them angry? Well, what really had them angry was the fact that Jesus was teaching and preaching and loving the sinners. It was the fact that Jesus was calling the sinners to the holiness of God and to repentance. In other words, what they really were upset about was something that was infinitely more scandalous than that Jesus ate with them. The real scandal was that Jesus was holding repentance out to the lost. And that's the one thing you never do. Because the whole point of church is to do your job in such a way that nobody ever has to repent. Right? Isn't that what I'm supposed to do? I'm supposed to protect you from the Holy Spirit so you don't have to repent. 
And so I preach about grace and, and I talk about how wonderful that all of us are gathered here this morning to see the Lord's word preached and then to see a Christian wedding and what a beautiful couple. And then we go home and we have a beautiful time. And, and it reminds me of the cartoon years ago I saw where a guy's sitting at a bar and he says, I had a happy childhood. Then I had a happy teenage years and, and I had a happy young adult life. And, and now I'm middle-aged having a happy middle-aged. I'm going to have a happy old age and then I'm going to go to happy heaven. And that's what Christianity is in America today. Come on, people. That's what it is. TBN. Oh. The health, wealth, gospel. And that's exactly what it was like at the time of Jesus. Where the people that should have been hanging with the lost had utterly betrayed their calling refuse to preach repentance, only preach moralism, their superiority, the superiority of their denomination and their denominational doctrine. You know, they wore head covering. They didn't wear head covering. We homeschool. You don't homeschool. We have, we have good music. They, you know, all this stuff. And there was absolutely no space in the church at the time of Jesus for sinners. There was none. Okay? And so what really offended them was that Jesus loved the lost. That's what offended them. Why? Because that's what God had called them to do. And they refused to do it. It was beneath them. Because the minute you love the lost, you get dirty. There's absolutely no way of loving the lost without getting dirty. How do you love a victim of child abuse without crying? And once you start crying, it's all over. Because you're no longer a man, and you're no longer a preacher. You've become a a pathetic weakling who's showing his emotion. And then you might have to go confront the father or the mother or the older brother or sister. And then that's messy. Pharisees and the scribes would have nothing to do with that. They had a system that they worked that made them look down their noses at everybody else. And we know that because Jesus told the story of the, of the publican and the Pharisee who were both praying, and the Pharisee said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this man over here, you know? And then Jesus said that the sinner, the publican, was saying, oh, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus said, which prayer was heard by God? <laughs> And so this is what's going on. You've got all the notorious sinners, and what they're doing is they're hanging with Jesus, all of them, okay? All the publicans and the religious leaders, the Presbyterian, Baptist, Episcopalian, are saying, this man is disgusting. Look at who he's hanging with. Look at who he's eating with. And so Jesus tells the story. Now, you remember at the beginning, I said, we love the story, but we don't know the context. You never have good things from God without going through a vivid picture of the sin of me and of you. You never come to the holiness of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God without being utterly convicted of your sinfulness. Okay? It's a principle of Scripture. And so here we have the two verses that convict religious America, all right? We were there, 
And we were saying, that's utterly disgusting that Jesus is hanging with these people. It's just disgusting. What a man. What a man. Now, here comes the story. So he told them this parable saying, what man among you if he has a hundred sheep? You remember when David had committed adultery and killed the husband of Bathsheba? And Nathan the prophet came to him with a word from God. Do you remember how Nathan sucked David into this story? Right? A man and his precious little lamb. Something about animal stories. Any of you read James Harriet? Man, I was sad to come to the end of those books. You know, there's something about animal stories that pull us in, right? And so Jesus tells an animal story. And here it is. So he told him this parable saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When I was a pastor up in Wisconsin, it was with farmers. And farmers have milk cows, but they also have cow cows that they eat. And uh, so some cattle farms and some dairy farms. And one day I was visiting a retired farmer and his wife. uh, And, you know, you sit and talk for a while. And what this man... And and I commented to him that when I was going over to his house that I had seen three cows on the road outside of their pasture, all right? And, you know, I was going slowly and the cows weren't really in the middle of the road. It was easy to get around them without hitting them. And what I remember is that the farmer was utterly disgusted And he said something to the effect that, yeah, that's John's cows. He never, ever knows his cows are out. In other words, it was a habit that these cows were always on the road. It was also very plain to me that that farmer despised the other farmer. Why? Well, because he was the opposite of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, what man wouldn't go out after the lost? But there are some men who keep a farm who are so callous and selfish that they don't even care about their animals being vulnerable. They don't even care. Mike taught one of them a lesson. If you haven't heard that story of Mike, where are you? There he is. You you ask Mike, raise your hand, Mike. There's Mike. You'll tell him the story of how you taught your your bad farmer neighbor a lesson, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good story. We've all heard it. That's Mike Bowles. Ask him. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And that's Jesus explaining why he is with the publicans and the sinners. Jesus didn't have any time for the Presbyterian Baptist pastors. All his time was for sinners. Okay? Now, at this point, what would normally happen is that the preacher would say to you, and so what you need to do is recognize that Jesus is there for sinners. And Jesus now has died on the cross, and, and he's, he's, he has given his life up to save you from your sin and to pay the penalty of God's wrath against ungodliness. 
And he has done everything he can. But this is what you have to do. You have to come to Jesus. And in fact, last week we we read the text, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so there is truth to that. But you know something? How many of you who, when you were in the throes of your sin, deepened, I think when I was in California, a young man, young single man, how many of you, when you were in bondage to your sin, were able to take steps towards Jesus? Listen, I've never heard an account from any man ever who was in bondage to sin who describes how he took steps to Jesus. It's religious people that give those stories. They tell you how they're this and that and the other thing in their church, and oh boy, you're just supposed to really, really respect them. But you know what? Christians always describe coming to Jesus as being passive. I joke about how my wife one day was driving our big four-club wagon into our neighborhood, and we had these precious little ornamental crab apple trees. They weren't even grown yet. And one day she was on snow, and instead of going around, there was an opposite camber to this curve. Instead of being banked the way it should be, it was the other way. So you're always in danger of going off the side of the road and over the ravine, you know. And so one day Mary Lee's driving with kids in the car. She comes to that curve, and she goes straight. And she just wipes out this little crabapple tree. Fortunately, it stopped her from going down the stiff hill on the other side, you know. And what I remember is the first time she told me the story, she told it in such a way that the crabapple tree came off the grass into the road and, and, and hit her, you know. And the way she told it, she was a passive participant in the accident. It was like the crabapple tree and the car conspired against the driver, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and of course, that's the way we always describe our sin and our failures. That's how we are. And so, when a man comes to Jesus, you know he's come to Jesus because he never describes himself in the active tense. He never talks about how he got his life together, how he turned his back on alcohol, how he gave up drugs, he gave up pornography, he gave up adultery, he gave up embezzling, he gave up his academic pride. I've never heard that story yet. That's a joke. What they always say is that when they were deep in the pit of sin, and this is how David describes it in the Psalms, that God reached down and picked them up and set them on a high place. Ah! And so that's why we love Day. A lot of you who are related to him today would like us to say that Dee was perfect when he came and had no need of repentance. That I won't lie to you. The reason we love Dee is because he was a lost sinner the rest of us were. And he made no bones about it. 
and he was humble, and he said, Jesus has grabbed me. Now, he did tell how the rest of you were used in his life to bring him back. But, you know, even you, you didn't help him. God helped him, and God used you to help him. And so we all look at D and we say, well, there's a lost sinner that came home. He's the lost lamb. He came home. And some of you might be inclined to resent us calling him a lost lamb. I say, okay, how about me? How about if D calls me a lost lamb who came home? Is that good enough? And you say, well, yeah, 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 yeah. And I say, yeah, 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 yeah. Every single Christian is the lost lamb that Jesus went out seeking. Every single Christian. Where someone religious says that they came to Jesus and does it in the active tense and says how, you know, maybe something about prevenient grace, okay? Maybe something about how they had just this basic sense that there was a higher power and then one day they discovered that that higher power was Jesus Christ and so ever since then they've tried to emulate Jesus with their character and show the world what a truly loving individual is. And I say bunk. I've never had a man come to Christ without tears. Never. And what are those tears? The tears of repentance. And do those tears continue? Yes, they do. Once the tears have started, they never stop. Because the transfer from death to life in Jesus Christ is such a radical transfer that nothing else approximates it. And it breaks you. It utterly breaks you. And the bad thing about the religious leaders at the time of Jesus was that they were in principle, opposed to being broken. And the good thing about the sinners and publicans is they went around with shame on their faces all the time. So them, to come to Jesus, was simply to acknowledge what they already knew about themselves. Now, listen to this. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after, that's God incarnate, Jesus Christ, going after you, okay, does not go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And then listen to this. When he has found it, he says, up with you. Come on, get your legs underneath you. Come on, come on, come on now. Keep up with me, keep up with me. You know? Or maybe sends the dog after him. And the dog nips its legs, you know, and the sheep starts coming after Jesus, you know. You know, a sheep dog, you know how obnoxious they can be, you know. Yip yapping and barking and nipping you. Now, what it says is that when the shepherd finds the sheep, that the shepherd puts the sheep on his shoulders. What that means is that God carries us. Do you understand this? Now, let me ask you, what place is there for religious pride with this story? There's none. Not 
any Christian has ever had spiritual pride about being born again. Because there is no agency. You see this. He reaches down, he grabs us, he lifts us out of the pit and sets our feet on a high place. And then he carries us on his shoulders. And that is the normal Christian life. And if you don't think you need to be carried day after day because of your sin, not because you're a paraplegic, not because your mama didn't love you, if you don't think you need to be carried every day because of your sin, your sin, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. Now, how could I say that? Because when Martin Luther put the 95 Theses up on the door of the church, the first of the 95 Theses he wrote was when our Lord Jesus said, you must repent, he was teaching us that the life of the Christian is a life of repentance. There is absolutely no way to follow Jesus Christ without taking up your cross. But I'll tell you something, the older you get, the more precious that cross becomes. Am I right, Vivian? And Vivian, at her godly age, I have no question, this is Dee's grandmother, lives a life of repentance. And I have no question that Dee's grandmother, just like the Apostle Paul when he got older, the Apostle Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. He didn't say, I used to be. (laughs) He said, I am. And so this is... Jesus' apology, and by that I mean his defense. This is Jesus' defense of bridging the gap between God and sinners. Now, there are a number of applications of this here this morning. One of them is, if you are a publican, I have this really twisted brain, and the people that are normally here know this. Uh, So, like, what is a publican today? Well, just put RE in front of it, and you may know. (laughs) You know, you may be a notorious Republican. You may be a politician. You may be a very proud intellectual. You may be a self-made man. You may be a godly grandmother. And whatever you take pride in, what you should aspire for, what you should want to be, is a lost lamb. Because unless you're a lost lamb, you get no attention from Jesus. Do you understand? And if you don't want attention from Jesus, you're a fool. Because we do need a hiding place. And so those of you who are notorious sinners, the application of this text is welcome. 
This is your place. This is your place. This. And you say, well, you just got done telling us that religious places are places that don't allow sin. And I say, yeah, that's absolutely true. You say, well, then you shouldn't come here. You should go to the bar. And I say, well, yeah, the bar would be better than most religious places. It would be better because you could be a sinner in a bar. And you can in most churches. But here we are intensely focused on protecting and making honest sinners. Do you understand what I mean? This is a place that makes it free for sin. And this is a place that does not allow the righteous. I mean, how how could we not do that? If Jesus hung with sinners, we must make it safe to be a sinner in this church. And if we're going to make it safe to be a sinner, we have to regularly spin off righteous people. And we do. We kick them out. We excommunicate them. I've never yet excommunicated... Well, I take that back. There was one. The elders have never excommunicated people who left saying they were sinners. The people that are excommunicated always leave telling everybody how righteous they are and how sinful the church is. It's the weirdest thing in the world. They always have principles that require them to get excommunicated, and those principles always make them righteous. Isn't that weird? And so here in this church, with the elders, with the older women, the Titus II women of this church, sinners are safe. Before I came up front, I was in the back, and there was a man that walked in front of me. And I remember the first time I met that man. He's, he's, he's a responsible man. He's a gifted man. I could tell you more about him, but I'd give away his identity. And I remember the first time that man came into this church, he could barely, barely speak to me because of his fear of God and his utter hatred for his sin. He was an utter basket case. And as he walked in front of me, I thought, the dignity that God has given him as he has been repenting for a couple of years now. And this is true of how many of us here. How many of us here have confessed our sin with tears to other people in this church? Raise your hand. Now, people who are visiting, would you turn around and would you look? Raise your hand. Raise it high. Do you see these hands here? And so if you're a sinner, you can confess your sin because you'll be confessing your sin to another sinner and they won't look down on you. They'll tell you what Jesus has done. That's it. Now, one other thing and then we'll be done. Did you know that Jesus says this. When he, found, he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, and then it says rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you, says Jesus, that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no. 
And that's why today's a party. D is a lost sheep. He's come home. And we have all been rejoicing. Now you're here and you join our rejoicing if you're a sinner. And if you're not, I'm sorry, you won't have a happy time. But we all love D. And we love him because he's a sinner just like us and Jesus bought him with his own blood. Now, this is also true of Emily. But in a feminist age, I have learned over the years in a university community that one, 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 not me, but one, you know, one would do well not to speak of the sins of the, and I used to be able to call it the weaker or the fairer sex, but of course that's sexism, so I won't say that, but in other words, nobody's going to like it if I talk about Emily's sin, but Emily is a sinner. And Emily has confessed her sin. And Emily has had great help from her brother Abram in confessing her sin. Where is Abram? Yeah, God bless you. And so now, because of those things, we get to rejoice with heaven. And it's a party. And it's very fitting that we have a party. And it's very fitting that we have a party on the occasion of the uniting together of a sinful woman and a sinful man who have been purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. And I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Could I just make note of the fact that David had just said, I have another minute. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Now, one word before we continue. At the beginning of the Reformation, times of Luther and Calvin, 500 years ago, it was the habit of them to have wedding services Sunday morning in connection with corporate worship. And so what seems strange to you used to be fairly normal in Protestant churches. And what they would do is either before the service or after the service, they would say this. Would those who are here to be married this morning please come forward? Uh, one other thing, the words I use with a few little paraphrases where I've changed words that are really obsolete, these words are the same words that have been used for 500 years, uh, starting with Cranmer, the, the Episcopal prayer book. I don't think you probably know about that, but there are some Episcopalians that still use the Episcopal prayer book. And the, the words of Cranmer in the Episcopal prayer book, which you hear in every wedding, they are traced back to the Sarum Rite of the Roman Catholic Church in the 11th century. And I want you to understand that so that you know that when Dee and Emily step into the discipline of these words, and you'll hear the discipline, 
These are the words that have been used for a thousand years for Christian weddings. There are some changes, but hardly any. And particularly where Emily vows to obey D, mm-hmm, right? It's exactly the same words that Princess Di promised to obey Prince Charles. Now they've changed it more recently, but I just thought you should know that quite recently, everybody used these words, all right? Dearly beloved, we are gathered together here in the sight of God and in the presence of these witnesses to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony. Marriage is an honorable estate which God himself made, and it signifies to us the mystical union that is between Christ and his church. This holy estate Christ adorned and made beautiful with his presence and first miracle at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. Marriage is also commended by Paul to be honorable among all men. The union of husband and wife in heart, body, and mind is intended by God for their mutual joy, for the help and comfort given one another in prosperity and adversity, and when it is God's will, for the procreation of children and their nurture in the knowledge and love of the Lord. Therefore, marriage is not to be entered into unadvisedly or lightly, but reverently, deliberately, soberly, in the fear of God and in accordance with the purposes for which it was instituted by God. Into this holy estate, these two persons, Emily and Dwayne, come now to be joined. If any man can show just cause why they may not lawfully be joined together, let him now speak or else hereafter forever hold his peace. I require and charge you both that if either one of you know any reason why your marriage goes against the laws of God, you now tell me, for you can be certain that if any persons are joined together otherwise than as God's word allows, their marriage is not lawful and they will give an account on the dreadful day of judgment when the secrets of all hearts will be revealed. D. Wayne. Will you have this woman to be your wedded wife, to live together after God's ordinance in the holy estate of matrimony? Will you love her, comfort her, honor and keep her in sickness and in health and forsaking all others, keep you only unto her so long as you both shall live? I will. Emily, will you have this man to be your wedded husband? to live together after God's ordinance in the holy estate of matrimony. Will you love him, comfort him, honor, and keep him in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, keep you only unto him so long as you both shall live? Who gives this woman to be married to this man? 